Well, Father, thank you so much that we can stand redeemed at your side one day in your very presence, entering into rooms prepared just for us, and we can dwell in your house forever. Lord, this morning we would humble our hearts carefully before you, recognizing that we are but dust and that our lives are but a vapor. And Father, may we have an eternal perspective about us as your children. We know that you have a plan and we know that you are sovereign. And and Lord, you give us but glimpses and snapshots in your word and so help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to benefit now richly from the study of your word today on this important subject at hand. Thank you, Lord, for the lives of Abraham and Sarah through whom we have benefited so much these past months. Thank you for recording these historical accounts for our good. Lord, may the Spirit, your Holy Spirit, have great liberty to work in us now as we open our Bibles and receive a word from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you take your Bibles and, by way of introduction, turn with me to that interesting, if not cynical, book of Ecclesiastes, right about in the middle of your Bible, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, written by the wisest man who ever lived, um, not without its paragraphs of frustration and cynicism and speculation, as he wonders about things, and yet as he draws important conclusions about man and living under the sun. Do you remember this book, Ecclesiastes? And I think that there are just some most interesting verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning with verse 1 through 4. Notice these words by Solomon probably written later in his life, a good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Do you believe that? I would suggest that for most of us, the topic of death or dying, those evenings when we must make our way to the funeral home for a visitation, to a memorial service, are days that we would rather avoid. The morgue is not a favorite place. And Solomon in his wisdom says to us, I want you to think about something. I want you to know that in reality, that more good takes place in the house of mourning and wisdom is found there. But if we just go to the feast table and party, there we'll find more fools. We'll make a fool out of ourselves. There is something beneficial about making our way up front to the casket and pondering the reality of death. 
It is an unavoidable subject for us this morning as I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 23 because we have now made our way through this incredible book of Genesis, this book of beginnings that I personally have felt like I've benefited more from than the listener, I think, and in preparing and preaching the messages. I hope that it's been compelling and I hope that you've benefited from it. And for some months now, you know that we have been considering the lives of this great man of faith, the patriarch Abraham, his wife Sarah, the ups and downs of their lives, and we now come to the part of the story where we wrap up the chapters on Abraham and Sarah, and they both pass away. It forces us to consider the reality of death. Before we read our text, let's just remind ourselves, not so much of the facts of life, but the facts of death. There are notes nearby on a chair. I thought that there were parts of this message that some of you might benefit by keeping it in the back of your Bible or reflecting upon it. it might, you might find it helpful. And so today I provided notes. Do you know that every year in the United States of America, 3.3 million people approximately, the statistics are estimates, That means that every day, 6,400 people die. On September 11th, 2001, when over 3,000 people died in the three different terrorist attack points, the day before, there were actually more deaths than occurred at that time. The day after, there were more deaths than those one incidents. I guess that day it got a bump, but it all equals out. Approximately 6,000-some people die every day. Accidents, overdoses, cancer, leukemia, airplanes flying into office buildings this week. The death rate in the U.S., by the way, is 100%. Have you thought about that? Isn't it interesting how we avoid this topic like the plague and it is the, one of the main points of commonality of all people. We are all going to die if the Lord doesn't return. The average lifespan in the U.S. in 2001, according to statistic I could find, was 77.7, according to AARP. I couldn't find one quickly, and I didn't think it mattered. It's close enough. 77.7. Interesting, isn't it, that that lines up with the Word of God. The psalmist said in Psalm 90, verse 10, that even if you take your vitamins... And even if you exercise and do push-ups, that the average lifespan is going to be about 70 years, unless God blesses you with extra strength, you might live to be 80 or 90. It all works out, you see. Some die at 17, and some at 37, and some at 51, and some make it to 100. I thought that was a sobering number because my next birthday, I turned 50. And I feel like I'm just getting going. And I thought, man, I'm going to be 77.7 like that. 
And there's people in our audience today that have passed it up or are ready to bump into it. And you have to say to yourself, it won't be long, they'll be laying me out. I don't want to be morbid. I don't want to be negative. But aren't you a fool if you're 75 years old and you're not preparing to die? I have news for you. If you're 17 and you're not preparing to die, you're a fool. That's the wisdom found in the house of mourning. I think it's interesting that approximately 8 out of every 10 women will find themselves to be widows married, who are married. This statistic is a little bit skewed in that part of the reason the statistic works out like that is that men marry more often, remarry more often after the loss of a spouse than women, and they remarry quicker, sooner. And so that skews the statistic a little bit as far as married and unmarried. We won't take the time in this service, but do you know that we know where death originated? We've studied it in Genesis chapter 3. Paul clearly tells us in Romans 5 verse 12 that according to Adam's sin, because of his sin, death came upon all men and death entered the world. There was no death before there was sin. We know exactly what causes death. We know exactly when it started. And for that very reason, there is nothing we can do about physical death. Because it was a condemnation that was put on God because of Adam's disobedience. The only thing we can do is deal with it at the spiritual level. Because my friend, in case you haven't noticed by looking in the mirror, you can't stop the progress of slow death physically. Whether it's dandelions, oak trees, or people, we begin, we grow, we flourish, we die. And it doesn't take very long. Genesis chapter 23 is an interesting chapter. We have bumped ahead for the love story of Isaac and Rebecca last week on Valentine's Sunday. You'll recall before that we had been at Mount Moriah. We had that incredible experience of faith where Abraham had offered his own son as a living sacrifice, a very picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and our Heavenly Father, his one and only son offered and how God provided Jehovah Jireh. We had that little anecdotal account at the end of chapter 22, which we referenced last week, about Nahor, Abraham's brother, having children and through whom he was able to find a wife for Isaac, his son. And the beginning of chapter 23 begins rather pointedly, Without any heir, Sarah lived to be 127 years old. And she died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am an alien and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. In this service, at least, I'm going to just omit the rest of the reading of chapter 23. It is a most interesting thing. We enter into chapter 23. We have a couple of things. Number one, we have the first time that a woman's age is given to us for her lifespan in the Bible. I think it's the only time in the Bible that a woman's lifespan and age is given and recorded for us. 
I think that it has to do with the stature and the significance of Sarah. This is also a historical count, first first of all, for the children of Israel, written by Moses. They were interested in tracking their genealogy and understanding why they were the children of promise. And Sarah passes away at 127. There is another interesting phrase, the way the NIV translates verse 2. It says, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. It could be that Abraham was not at Sarah's side when she passed away. The rest of the chapter is interesting because that is all it says about Sarah's death, essentially, other than that she's buried. The rest is the Middle Eastern wrangling of men for a piece of property. And the record for God's people, the Jews, the Israelites, to know that Abraham was above reproach and with full disclosure purchased that property in the promised land, the land that was promised to him, he bought off the Canaanite men there that day. You can read it, it's kind of interesting. And I would suggest that the main reason it's there is so that it is a declaration of the faith of Abraham that this is where his children would be. This is where God called him, this is where God told him to possess And it goes on record that he bought this property and nobody could say that Abraham didn't get the property fair and square. That's all I'm going to say about that right now. You can jump to the end and it references in verse 19. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Mechpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Now will you turn the page and go to chapter 25 and look at verses 7 and 8. In fact, let's, let's go ahead and read this passage 1 through 11. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. The descendants of Dedan were the Asherites, the Lechusites, and the Lemuites. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephar, Hanak, Abida, and Eladah. All these were the descendants of Keturah. I thought if I said them fast enough, you wouldn't know if I pronounced them right or not. <laughs> Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines, definition, the two women that he married, Hagar and Keturah, referenced as concubines as not his proper wife in the sense of God working through the child of promise. Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac, verse 5, but while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Altogether, Abraham lived 175 years. And then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave at Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron son of Zohar, the Hittite, the field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai Roy. 
I want us to make some observations about the end of life matters and this whole issue of dying. In essence, now I want to basically deal with the issue topically by referencing, though, Abraham and Sarah and what happened with them. I think that it's important, and I also think as a pastor, it's not very often that I have an opportunity in the natural flow of our text for us to just deal with this important subject of dying and preparing for death. You say to yourself, man, I'm really glad I came to church this morning. (laughs) Yeah, man, sunny day, beautiful day, let's choir singing and pastors preaching on dying. (laughs) Well, I don't in any way mean to be morbid, But Abraham and Sarah die. And we need to think about what was happening around them. And I think we would be foolish not to carefully consider the ramifications for our own lives. First of all, if you're filling in the blanks, the first thing we want to think about is the matter of dying itself. Dying. Number one, dying. First of all, I want you to see that death is unavoidable. Death is unavoidable. The King James especially states it clearly in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It says that there is, it is appointed unto man once to die. There is a day of appointment. God knows the day that you're going to die right now. You don't know. Psalm 139, verse 16 says that all of our days are written in his book before any one of them come to be. In Erwin Lutzer's book, The vanishing power of death, he told a funny story or a cute story. It was a Middle Eastern fable. A Middle East fable is told of a Baghdad merchant who sent his servant to the marketplace to run an errand. When the servant had completed his assignment and was about to leave the marketplace, he turned a corner and unexpectedly met Lady Death. The look on her face so frightened him that he left the marketplace and hurried home. He told his master what had happened and requested his fastest horse so that he could get as far away from Lady Death as possible. A horse that would take him all the way to Samara before nightfall. Later the same afternoon, the merchant himself went to the marketplace and lo and behold, met Lady Death. Now why did you startle my servant this morning, he asked. I didn't intend to startle your servant, replied Lady Death. It was I who was startled. I was surprised to see your servant in Baghdad this morning because I have an appointment with him in Samara tonight. (laughs) Listen, reality is that death is unavoidable. Reality is that when we started talking about Abraham and Sarah, we knew that they wouldn't live forever. They live longer than any of us will live. God was still allowing some of the people at this time and the patriarchs. You notice that there is a waning of the lifespans. And not long after that, by the time King David lives, for example, that basically an 80 or 90 year old man is an old man or an old woman. Death is unavoidable. There is an appointed day. I think that Job said it so clearly in Job 14.5. Man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits. He, listen to the blanks, he cannot exceed. You have set limits. Lord, you know the span of my life. In essence, I find comfort in that. 
that if I'm not doing stupid things, and if I'm doing everything I believe the Lord wants me to do, and and you come to my funeral next week, that's okay, because God knew, and God has a plan. There's a reason that, for example, Pastor Hanshi was killed at age 41, 42. Years ago, over at Independent Bible Church, the church that started us, their pastor was killed suddenly one night in a car wreck one afternoon, stunning the church, the prime of his life. Why? Because God appointed his months, and God has been doing something with that ever since. Life is also very brief. The Bible's very clear. There are many metaphors in Scripture, and I listed them for you. Swifter than a weaver's shuttle is familiar, but a shadow swifter than a runner. Life is but a few days. It is a breath. It is a vapor. It is like grass. Cut today, dries up in the sun, is burned, is gone. James reinforces this. It is but a mist. You walk out on a winter's cold day, and you go, oh. And you see the mist and the breath, and then it's gone, and that's our lives. Death is unpredictable. Death is unpredictable. Notice in our story that Sarah dies first. I would also reference what I mentioned earlier, that Abraham, it says, went to mourn for her. It's very possible that Abraham was caught by surprise. Do you know that? It's very possible that he was away on business. It's very possible that that Sarah, maybe though she was weakening and it was evident in her aging that she was not going to live a lot longer, that Abraham felt secure enough to carry on business and a servant comes running. Abraham, Sarah has passed. Huh. I'm always interested, even in my own responses, when I recognize a family member, as we've experienced numerous, who have died of various causes, and as a pastor, as I've dealt at the bedside of the sick and the dying, that sometimes when I get the call, I wow, I, I didn't think that would happen today. It's unpredictable. Or even the opposite. The doctor comes in and he says, six to 12 hours. I've been around long enough at bedsides that when doctors say how long they live, it doesn't really mean anything. They don't know. Six to 12 hours turns into six to 12 days. Once in a while into months. It's imminent. They know that. They, can't, they know they don't know everything. It's unpredictable. Interesting that the pattern of most normal lifespan is that the woman dies first. I've referenced, excuse me, the man dies first. There are 13.7 million, according to AARP, widowed adults in America, of which 11 million are women. 13.7 million, 11 million are women. In our story, Sarah dies first, and we see that on occasion as well, don't we? Proverbs says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day will bring. Listen, I think that it is a a valuable spiritual discipline to live every day as though it's our last. To keep short accounts. Oh, didn't my family find that out on an evening coming down from Pearl Cavenders for supper on Route 9 a few years ago when those boys slammed into us? 
They lost their lives immediately. God spared us in his mercy. I guess our work wasn't quite done. Secondly, in our story, we encounter grieving. We encounter, first of all, dying. Secondly, we encounter grieving. Abraham went to mourn Sarah. We're not going to say a lot about this at this point other than you should never be ashamed to grieve and to mourn. Let the tears flow. That's what God designed them for. You don't have to be stoic. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to be embarrassed to let the tears come, to let people love you. Didn't our Lord Jesus stand at the tomb of his dear, beloved friend, Lazarus? And the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35 says, and Jesus wept. In his humanity, he knew exactly what it felt like. And we hate the sting of death, don't we? It is our enemy. When Stephen was martyred, Acts chapter 8 touches my heart. When I read it, over, I, I, every time I read it, I, I can almost let myself get tears. And it says, And godly men there gathered his body, buried him, and grieved. They mourned for their dear brother, Stephen. It's not wrong to grieve, my friend. Can I tell you what is wrong? It is wrong for believers in the Lord Christ to grieve as those who have no hope. Why don't we grieve like people who don't know Christ? If you're a Christian, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, listen, I ran down a list of things there, but suffice it to say this, that they went immediately into the presence of the Lord that Paul says is better by far. And we will join them there to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I find great comfort in that. Paul says we will be reunited and there will even be a bodily resurrection and the dead in Christ will rise first, 1 Thessalonians 4, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air together. Man, I don't know how that works. But it works. And everything else in Scripture that is prophesied like that is pretty much literal. And so I take it literally. Do not stand by the casket of your loved one and grieve without hope. Oh, what does it mean to go home and open the closet door and put your face in the clothing and smell? What does it mean to see the pictures? What does it mean to see the coffee mug? What does it mean to see the briefcase? What It grieves us deeply. The loss, the emptiness. And you weep and you weep. But if you know Christ, there's hope, right? There's hope. Be together again. The greatest gift you can give your family is the assurance and the fruit-bearing of a Christian life that gives them the confidence at your funeral that you are a born-again Christian. So that the promises of God can be elevated at that point in time, not minimized, because we just don't know about this guy. We move from dying to grieving to burying, and I wanted to touch on this. Clearly in our story, in both passages... 
the dead are buried. And this raises an interesting side point that as a pastor I encounter on occasion. A loved one will pass away or it will be eminent for a loved one to pass away. And they will say to me, Pastor Van, we are planning to cremate. Is that okay? What does the Bible say? And so I know, and you know that I know, that some of you have had loved ones cremated and so forth. And so I don't, I'm not haranguing and I'm not pounding the pulpit. I want to be most careful. I will share now my opinion. All right, this is not the word of God. In fact, point number one is that the word of God, the Bible gives no clear directives on this. So if you have cremated, you do not have to have a guilty conscience. I think that if it was that important, God would have given a directive on it. Many people do it to save money. It is interesting to me that the cost of cremation has now gone way up. It's supply and demand. But uh, mostly through Orwin Lutzer's... uh, I meant to record the book and the chapter. Orwin Lutzer is the pastor of Moody Church. I want to give him credit for most of the thoughts in this box. But it lined up so much with what I thought that I just kind of clicked off his points. I changed them a little bit. Erwin Lutzer, the pastor of Moody Church, one of the outstanding preachers of today. He's contemporary. He's still living. As far as I know, preaching in his pulpit in Chicago this morning. He's an excellent thinker, scholar, writer, example to us young preachers. Young preachers. He wrote a little book called The Vanishing Power of Death. And in that book, I believe pages 126 through 129, he deals with this question. First of all, the Bible gives no direct instruction, only examples. We know clearly, and this was my point, the Old Testament saints buried their dead. We know that the New Testament saints, believers, buried their dead. And Erwin Lutzer builds a case for the fact that they were, after the death of Christ, they did it out of example. Because Jesus was buried, they were buried. It was a bodily burial. Number four, we do note that in Scripture, fire is almost always a a condemning thing. Fire is for the damned. It was interesting to me, and I added these points, that even in Levitical law, and you have a couple examples given there in the text, text referenced that only even certain horrendous, abominable sins, the person for excommunication was not to be stoned, they were not to be their head cut off, they were to be burned with fire. It's interesting. They were to be, get rid of them. Evidently, that there not even be a grave to go visit to that person. You follow me? Their sin was so horrendous, we don't even remember them. We blot them out. The new, and I am not saying that anybody who does cremation that that is that way. We can put cremated remains somewhere and some people choose to scatter them. And we don't have directives. And so I think it is ultimately and bottom line a point of personal choice. I do think it's significant, as Erwin Lutzer points out, that the New Testament imagery of the believers as sleeping is best pictured by burial. There is no such thing as soul sleep in the Bible. Our spirit and soul immediately enter the presence of the Lord, but our bodies rest in the grave for the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of believers. And 
Often in the New Testament, that is called sleep. Some people try to build a case for soul sleep that we're going to sleep now until the Lord returns. That's not true. And it's often because of the confusion created by that New Testament word. And New Testament believers often bury their dead and make them look like they're sleeping because of the very language of the Bible. The Apostle Paul also talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 that there are different kinds of life form and seed must, a seed is put in the ground and then it is resurrected and it grows up. And some people will use that concept as an argument for a bodily burial. It is buried one form of kind of flesh and it's raised another kind of flesh. Burial for the believer stands also in contrast with what pagans often believe about cremation. Around the world, and even here in North America, for example, North American Native American Indians and uh, some northern land, Northland um, um, Native Americans will burn their dead. In their ritual, it has to do with releasing the spirit of that person to, to, to re-enter the universe. And, and also to be able to enable that one spirit to be released for reincarnation. And I know that believers in Christ who practice cremation do not believe that at all. It has nothing to do with that. But I just thought it was germane to the passage that they buried and they didn't cremate. And if you ask your pastor, this is what he'll tell you. It is my opinion that God's people bury their dead. My mother, I was a little bit surprised when she passed away, had given, but it's because she's so scotch, said they could cremate, or she would be cremated. And also she was in Charlotte, North Carolina, and she thought it might bother somebody to transport her body to Michigan. And she didn't want to bother anybody. And my brother and my two sisters all were in agreement. And I called them upon my mother's, right the days before she died, and I said, hey, you guys, if it's okay with you, I would prefer that we bury mom's body up with dad. Let's not cremate her. Turned out that we were able to, because we did not have a viewing, it was less expensive for the funeral home in Charlotte to prepare the body, put it in a transport box, and in the back of my brother-in-law's church van with a blanket over it, appropriate for my mom to be in the Sunday school van, went all the way to Michigan, and we laid her to rest the sandy soil there under the oak tree near my father, my younger brother. I didn't do this to make anybody feel guilty at all. I did it because it's a common question. People want to know how I feel about it. And that's how I feel about it. And that's how I have acted in my own personal life. Let's wrap up. There is an interesting point that comes to play in chapter 25, and that is the matter of remarrying. Remarrying. We have dying, we have grieving, and now we have, remar- we have burying, number three. Number four, we have remarrying. How many of you, don't raise your hand, have made your spouse promise they will not remarry if you die? Huh? <laughs> Listen, let me just rattle this off. First of all, it is practical. The Apostle Paul, and it is biblical. It is biblical and practical, number one there. The Apostle Paul and, uh, said clearly that you should remarry, especially... Younger widows should remarry to avoid sexual temptation. I would take it, though he didn't direct that to men, that it applies directly to men as well. It's just he knows even then the common thing was for the woman to be widowed. It is a personal decision, number two. It is a personal decision, second bullet point. 
know that it will impact your family. If you have adult children, if you have any estate at all, you've got matters to think about, you need to seek counsel. Some of you who are in this position and you have younger children or junior high age children, high school children, you may want to wait a few years if you can stand it. Let them get through and out of the house before you remarry. It's very difficult sometimes for children. So there are some personal things that enter in. Other families have a great ability to release their loved one to remarry. They want them to remarry. And what a blessing sometimes if you have a father who's able to remarry and his wife takes care of him like uh, my wife's granddad remarried and had 27 more years with Avenel and she took wonderful care of granddad and what a blessing she was. Loved by all, especially her sticky buns. (laughs) The final bullet point, and I'm not going to take time to explain it, we've got to shut down here, is that it should be missional. And you can take time to read it, but what Apostle Paul says there is, I wish that people who are single, unmarried, or widowed would stay single so that they can serve the Lord. And the only point I wanted to make there is, don't remarry unless it's going to help you be a better Christian. Unless you're going to serve the Lord more effectively married, stay single if you can. That's what the Apostle Paul says. It's not very romantic. We could say more on that point. Suffice it to say that if it is God's will, you go ahead and do it. I would encourage you to seek counsel of a pastor or a trusted friend because old people can act as stupid as young people when they fall in love. Don't make a fool out of yourself. Make sure you have a safety net around you, somebody watching over your soul. And I say that, let me say this. I have a lot of things I want to say on these final points. You have to stay for second service. You need to be really careful to be critical of people who are in these circumstances and even when they do dumb things because you don't know how you would act if you could lose a spouse. And my observation as a pastor is that it shakes you to the core. It puts you into a loop that you didn't anticipate and that loneliness after years of marriage It's just an incredible kick in the head. And so you need to bring people around you to watch over you and to guard you, to help you. Bottom line is, we need to plan and provide for our family. Number five is preparing. Let's wrap up here now with these two questions. First of all, is your house in order? And secondly, is your heart ready? Listen. We've got to shut it off here, but will you listen closely for a minute? We need to do a better job of being prepared to depart from our loved ones. Somebody will settle your estate. Somebody will settle your estate. Why don't you take steps now to, to making sure it is orderly and even start giving it away now if you're older? Be prepared if you're younger for what would happen if you're suddenly taken. When I walk in my basement in my garage, I worry about this. Somebody's going to have to come clean up this mess. (laughs) And one of my main goals in getting it clean is so that I can die. (laughs) But what's the bottom line? 
Are you ready to die today, my friend? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? Jesus, back at his friend Lazarus' grave, said, I am the resurrection and the life, didn't he? Whosoever believeth in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? He's your sin bearer. Has he taken your sin? Can you look Lady Death in the eye and laugh? Shouldn't a watching world be astounded and amazed as they watch believers die? There's got to be something about those people, the way they can die at peace. Let's bow our heads. Before I close in prayer and we're dismissed, I want you to ask yourself right now, am I ready to enter eternity? Do I know Jesus Christ as my Savior? Will you admit your sinfulness? That's what keeps us away from heaven. God is holy. He can't look at sin. Do you admit your sinfulness today? Do you believe that Jesus was your sin bearer? He died on the cross for you and he takes you just as you are right now out of his love and his kindness and he'll save your soul. By grace through faith, enter into his salvation. Would you do that? The most important thing you can do is not leave your family with a million dollars. It's leave your family with the assurance that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and that you're all going to reunite in heaven one day. I invite you this morning to quietly make sure right now you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. We're going to sing one stanza of an invitation hymn. If you would like to come forward and solidify that decision by making it public, I invite you forward. But even right now, in the quietness of your own heart, you can cry out to God, ask Him to forgive you of your sin and make you His child and settle heaven once and for all based upon the promises of His Word. So, Father, You know our hearts and our minds and, and so work in us. And may no one leave today without knowing for sure they know Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's in His name I pray.